Hello, my good man. Welcome, everyone. It's time for On the Couch with Sick and Blue. A lot of crazy, crazy things. Looking at fantasy football from a deeper place. This is going to be a changing day in your life. And now here's your host, Sick and Blue. But I would not moan my mother. Who is the one rookie you cannot leave your rookie draft without? That more this week on the couch. Scott Barrett, fantasy points. Who's the one rookie you cannot leave your rookie draft without? Yeah, so so that's a great question. Uh, I'm I'm heartbroken every time I leave a draft without Clyde Edwards Alaire, but that's that's almost all of them. Sure. So so the guy the guy you can grab. Uh, I will say Michael Pittman, uh, just, you know, our guy at, at our new site, Greg Cassell, you know, mm-hmm. compared him to Michael Thomas, absolutely loves him. Uh, you know who also absolutely loves him? Head coach Frank Reich, who yeah. uh, in that video he put out where, you know, you could follow Indianapolis with the, uh, you know, during the draft, he said he thought, you know, Pittman might be the best wide receiver in this class. It's just an ideal landing spot. There's not much uh competition there. Uh T. Y. Hilton, what is he? Is he like thirty one now or thirty right. two years old? And uh and and the way they talked about this guy it was the, it was the GM Chris Ballard, it was the owner, it was the head coach. They all said that they think he could be a true dominant wide receiver one in the NFL. They want him to play the X. And I actually dug even deeper and I, I got the area scout who first pointed uh the GM and the head coach to Pittman and he said he was there at his, uh, at his college watching his practices. And he was like, I know this sounds crazy, but, but I swear it's true. I, I went to a bunch of practices and I never saw him lose a one-on-one rep in, in, in practice. I went to the senior bowl, didn't see him lose a one-on-one rep in, in practice. This guy I think could be dominant in the NFL. And I think this guy could be dominant in the NFL. I'm glad you mentioned Clyde Edwards Hilaire. Um, I did get, I did have a terrible in our football guy staff dynasty. I was, I was bad enough that I got the 101 and I didn't have to mm. pause or think about it. I mean, I think that's the underlying thing that I, we would both stand together in unison and say to folks, 101, I think even in a 0.5 PPR and non PPR, for those of you that are still doing those, I may be a little bit more involved. In a typical one uh, point PPR, it's Clyde Edwards, you don't even think about it. You don't even think about it. I mean, this, the alignment here is spectacular. Uh, Ted Nguyen from The Athletic did an excellent piece that came out this morning on the 10 best fits in, uh, in the draft. And you actually hit on two of them, Edward Tolaire and Pittman. Uh, and I think drawing attention to Pittman is good. And it, what's real interesting here, Scott, and, you know, we are supposed to be in the business of giving people actionable advice. And again, if you didn't hear Scott mention it, fantasy points, um, Greg Cassell is there, who's just like a legend. I mean, Greg Cassell is one of the minds that has created this erudite, studied football world looking deeper that we all like to be in. And um, lots of other, Grant Barfield, lots of other people, of course, um, to check out there at Fantasy Points. And you did an excellent series breaking down the press conferences and just looking at key quotes. And I also loved your, I, I'm an armchair psychoanalyst. I mean, we're on the couch with Sigmund. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh Michael Pittman, though, you can see that the Colts 
uh, they, they had a higher priority than Jonathan Taylor. You know, they thought if we only can come out of this draft with one of Pittman or Taylor, then first we want Pittman. And on the subject of actionable advice, there's that fat second tier of wide receivers in rookie drafts. It, I think that Justin Jefferson has probably uh, separated himself. I think that Henry Ruggs, just because of draft capital, is in that mm-hmm. top four, top five. I mean, whether he's in your top four or top five. But then it's like Rager and Chenault and Pittman and Higgins and Ayuk, you know. And there's all kinds of different ways you can sort these guys out. And before the draft, I think part of how you sorted it out uh, with Pittman, I did have Pittman at the top of that group except for Mims. Mims also is in that group. I, I have a crush on Mims. But Pittman is so skilled, and that's going to be more important for this year because of that lack of a ramp-up. And then when you see the fit like Ted Wynn laid out and how the Colts are so excited. Um, so let's say Pittman is your top receiver of that second tier. Actionable advice if someone says, okay, well, Pittman just went right in front. I'm sitting at 111, you know. Pittman just went right in front of me. Who would be your second choice out of that big second tier that makes this wide receiver group so special? Yeah, so I got I got Brandon Ayuk in the third round uh, of a super flex rookie. Yeah, he's he's another guy I love. I, I've been looking at I've been looking at uh, Dynasty a little bit different lately, where where we think like a landing spot, like Nikhil Harry to uh, the Patriots. I think you were talking about this. It's like it looks like a great landing spot on paper. You know, not a lot of target volume, and then it's like the worst spot to be in and he disappoints and it's a bad prospect. Uh, I'm looking at it a little differently where, where immediate target volume doesn't matter as much to me mm-hmm. as, as something like, let's say regime certainty and regime uncertainty. Let's look at, um, let's look at Denzel Mims, who we both love. Let's look at LaVisca Chenault. So those are both pretty raw prospects coming out. You know, raw route runners needed some time to develop, but big, big ceiling, uh, clearly. I think both of those guys landed in bad landing spots. Like the, the short-term immediate target competition isn't too uh, detrimental, but it's I think these are two lame duck head coaches who are going to be, you know, on the couch or on a different team next year. So you can have a new guy come in who isn't that invested in this player. That's that's half of the equation to, to draft capital. These guys have an investment. They want uh, these players to succeed. Uh, maybe some a guy comes in, doesn't really get LaVisca Chanel, how to use him, doesn't want to manufacture touches for him, doesn't fit the scheme. And then that's just like a really poor landing spot. Uh, so I, I think quality of coaches, and also especially now amidst the, the coronavirus uh, where, you know, less practice time, um, I think, I think that's going to matter, matter a lot. So I, those two guys, not a great landing spot to me. I think that's really fair. I think that's something that we don't wait enough when we think about these things in dynasty leagues and bringing up Jacksonville is perfect because it's just the idea of the regime that drafted the player. You want to still be the regime three or four years from now or else. A, like you said, they have no personal investment to keep giving them chances and keep trying to create the perfect role for them to show how smart they were to take them. But also, uh, just a different regime is going to come in and maybe have different plans for that player and see them differently. So I think you're absolutely right to point that out and hold it in contrast to guys like Rager and Higgins. I mean, look, you're going to see at least like three years of the Burrow, Taylor, Brian, Callahan. <sighs> 
I mean, we're we're gonna see what it can, what kind of fruit it can bear. And by the way, Burrow was one of Ted, and Ted's fantastic, one of the best film breakdown people in the biz. Uh, Burrow yeah, was great. also, it was also one of his top ten fits. And he wasn't just staying in in the early picks either. You know, he had Meek Robertson, some other players. So Burrow's going to get a chance to flourish in an offense that should be well suited for his talents. And uh, T. Higgins is obviously uh, ticketed to be one of the top receivers. And I think you're right too to downplay the importance of first year targets or first year opportunities. Something that people should think about with uh, uh, running backs too. Uh, you, press conferences. I love the series that you do at the press conferences, Scott. And folks, if you haven't um, got your free account for Fantasy Points, sign up just for that, just so you can read that. What else? Well, first on the personal side, because I like that you're also paying attention not just to the words like your computer transcripts and what did they say, but you're actually watching them for their moods, their body language, even sometimes how they're playing off of each other. Um, give me a takeaway or two on the human side, maybe how your opinion of a coach changed or was enhanced because you really put the jeweler's eye on when you were watching these press conferences. Yeah. So, so that was one of the exciting aspects of it where, so I'm not at PFF anymore. So, you know, the, uh, these NFL teams aren't our clients. So I can really be honest about how I feel towards a, a certain GM or, or front office. And, 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 you know, I didn't pull any punches here. With uh, certainly a few of the teams, we were just talking about Brandon Ayuk. I think Kyle Shanahan's a genius. So, you know, him in this offense, he, he said uh, Ayuk was his number one receiver in the class. He almost took him at thirteen. Yeah, give me this guy in a Kyle Shanahan offense who 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 loves him, knows how to use him. But uh, doing this exercise, it really jumped out to me uh, the the differences between a well-run franchise, a poorly run franchise, a really smart head coach and, and one who wasn't as smart. So let's say a guy who disappointed me, let's say Anthony Lynn, uh, just really blatantly obvious. This guy was from the Rex Ryan coaching tree. I'll, I'll leave it at that. And I think, I think <laughs> this is, this is going to be an important year where the differences between a good head coach and a bad head coach really materialize. Just the, the lack of practice time. How do you adjust to that? What, what do you do? And then they're coming in and, and running in a brand new offense. The, the offensive coordinator came in halfway through last season, but, you know, uh, was disappointed he didn't get a chance to really, you know, run out his offense. That's what this offseason was going to be for. They're not going to have that time. That's a team I would bet the under on, a team I would bet the over on and, and, and buy long term, uh, like a stock would be Cincinnati. Uh, Really, really, really impressed by not just the head coach, Zach Taylor there, but also the offensive coordinator. Just two guys who it was really clear, uh, they, they know what they were doing. Uh, they, they know what it, they really get it. Uh, and I think they're going to be successful for a really long time. They're, they're like, we're going to incorporate, yeah, what, what Joe Burrow did well at LSU. We're going to incorporate a lot of that into our playbook. Like, that's great. Like, we want our guys to succeed. We're going to do what they do well. Uh, and, and two guys who just like really blew me away in, in the, their pressers. Yeah, the Bengals. It's time to be looking forward to the future if you're a Bengals fan. Max Dean, the chat room also points out that 32B Riders, excellent Twitter follow, is also doing some stuff on mm-hmm. the pressers. Um, and Josh Norris always does a tremendous series. That's right. Roto World. Uh, so, oh, yeah. I, I think that Cincinnati, we should absolutely be optimistic. Let me just get, take your temperature since you mentioned Cincinnati and you mentioned what Joe Burrow did well at LSU. 
Uh, what about Joe Brady and Teddy Bridgewater and Mm -hmm. add in Robbie Anderson? Are we sleeping on Carolina's offense? Is this going to be an offense that is exciting for fantasy football, even though, you know, sure, the coronavirus offseason, et cetera, but they have a bit of a drop because of the experience that Brady and Bridgewater have together? Um, I, I think there's at least an, an outside chance. Robbie Anderson has some experience with the head coach as well. The player I'm most excited about, and, and I know this isn't a hot take by any stretch, but it's it's Christian McCaffrey. We have to remember that Clyde Edwards-Alaire in this offense uh, caught the most receptions by an SEC running back in at least – at least since the year 2000. And the only guys who came close were like Percy Harvin, who was, right. you know, Randall Cobb, basically, you know, wide receivers anyway. Uh, so like, what is Christian McCaffrey going to do in this mm-hmm. offense? I, I, I'm just so excited. And then you also have to look at it. So let, let's, you know, pivot a little bit. Is is Scott Turner, you know, with the Washington Redskins, is he envisioning uh, Gibson as this sort of McCaffrey-like Running back because he loves, uh, you know, r- running backs who are like McCaffrey, where they can expose a defense. How are you going to adjust to this guy if we split him out wide? Uh, and 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 they just, you know, could could it be probably not this year? But you know, that's definitely in his range of outcomes. And upside wins championships, so that's a guy you, you're probably going to have to overpay on, even though his bust rate might be higher than a lot of the guys going around him. Yeah, I continue to come back to Gibson and Devin DuVernay as players that I feel like I'm underrating. I put the Bloom 100. I try to put the Bloom 100 out on the Monday after the draft because the the post draft because I want people to have something actionable for rookie drafts. But later on that day, I look at it and I want to change it. I also don't want people to think that I'm just totally erratic. And at any point you ask my opinion, it might change in five minutes. But we continue to even some of the things you're uh, uncovering, Scott, like data points from the press conferences, or just having a chance to think about it after the adrenaline has gotten out of our system from the draft. Um, and Gibson, the thing that I keep coming back to with Gibson is they had one pick on the second day, and they used it on Gibson, and they didn't need him in any way. Mm-hmm. Gibson kind of mm-hmm. reminds me of they had the most crowded. Sorry, they had, yeah, they had the most crowded running back room by a landslide. Right, right. They get Peyton Barber, they get J.D. McKissick, they still they bring back Peterson, they still have Darius Geis, um, they have Bryce Love, who I wonder if it's time for us to stop holding a candle for him. Speaking <laughs> of an explosive talent, yeah. uh, Gibson reminds me of David Johnson in some ways, like Northern <laughs> Iowa, David. Johnson. I have the same take. Yeah. <laughs> and, and th- th- he's on a team that's going to have a will to figure out what he can do. Again, this idea that, I mean, and I sometimes maybe give the NFL too much credit when I say they act, they kind of get it right. I mean, the draft isn't a crapshoot. Most of the best players go in the first round. As you go down the, the draft, like generally there's not much there in the fifth, sixth or seventh round, but sometimes it's because teams want to show how smart they were to take players and keep giving them chances and come up with special plans for them. But yeah, Antonio Gibson is just a breathtaking player sometimes. And he's the kind of player that can force his way into touches, can force his way into the team plan. So that's absolutely an exciting player. Scott Turner, we shall see. We, sh- I mean, there's some continuity there. That makes me worry though. It's so, so funny, Scott, you say continuity and, and, and Scott, uh, Turner and I think, oh no, they're going to start Kyle Allen week one. You know, <laughs> don't laugh. Right. I'm, I'm the one laughing, right? Because that's just that. And, and I, in general, and I'm going to, once things calm down, we're doing a lot of stuff at football guys to open everything back up right now. 
I really want to do some sort of rankings or analysis through the lens of continuity. Like continuity is going to be a multiplier or a, a magnif I mean, a magnifier multiplier, or it's going to make things, you know, microscopic. At least early in the season, I think we're going to see this. And some of the teams with straight continuity across the board, like you know, New Orleans comes to mind, Kansas City comes to mind. Those teams are really going to have the drop. And I think it was uh, uh, Jacob Rickrode that pointed out the 2011, the last year without an offseason, was a big time passing year. It was Matthew Stafford's big breakout year. So a lot of stuff to think about. Um, on a on an informational standpoint, Scott, not so much what you got from the coaches' personalities or how they uh, mm -hmm. express themselves, just from a pure informational standpoint, what stands out from the pressers as something that you want to think, oh, okay, well, i got to go back to the drawing board and incorporate that now. Um, uh, let's see. So uh, Adam Troutman uh, and Cole Komet are both viewed as the inline Y tight ends, which I thought was weird for New Orleans because they basically traded the rest of their draft for this right. guy. He, he said uh, they had him as a top 40 player in this draft. So they clearly liked him way more than uh, their, uh, you know, the dr draft capital implies. And I think that's, that's important. There's a lot of guys I can talk about like that, but just the why in a Sean Payton offense. I mean, Jared Cook is not the why. Kobe Fleener was not the why. Jimmy Graham was not the why. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm just wondering how that would look in his offense because we haven't really seen it. Um, Adam Trump is better than Cole Komet, right? I mean, I think so. I I liked him a lot, but I also whiffed on Hunter Bryant badly. It might have been the knee issues. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, Hunter Bryant. I think he was in the around number forty or so in the pre-draft league one hundred, and he looked like not quite as flexible and bendy. I think Jordan Reed was a comparison thrown out, and he's not a Jordan Reed type quite, but he can certainly be someone who's a mismatch for a linebacker trying to run up the field with him and. He's shown that he can create some big plays. Of course, he lands in Detroit, though. Well, that's not exactly exciting with TJ Hawkinson. But yeah, I think, I mean, I think that the knee might have been a bigger part of the picture than we thought. They gave him like $75,000 per something, like a, a pretty high amount. A lot of UDFAs got 100000 plus this year. That's something to keep track of, too, in that second part of the draft. Okay, stepping back again, just big, big picture. Okay, Scott, big, big, big picture. Because one of the things... Now more than ever, Scott, we have a lot of time to hang out on social media and talk football. And we're and part of that's talking football with all the people that we love. It's very stimulating. But part of that is we get an idea of the temperature of the room. You know, if I say to you, what does fantasy football conventional wisdom have wrong, like the most wrong, the wrongest right now? What's something that you see that is basically a widely held belief that you're shaking your head and you're saying, nah, I don't. I don't think so. I, I think that this is a inefficiency that you can exploit in fantasy leagues right now. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of them. I, I got trashed. I got dragged on Twitter yesterday for, uh, you know, commenting on Miles Sanders and, and questioning his. You should talk to Jay Moyer. Ranks. Jay Moyer yeah. is it, well. He's the guy that also keeps popping up to be like Miles Sanders needs to be a lot better if he's going to be a feature back. Go ahead. Yeah. So. I mean, that's really interesting. I did know that PFF, you know, trashed him in terms of grades last year, but I thought he looked okay. Uh, my issue is I, I don't think he has bell cow upside. I think, I think Deuce Staley, Doug Peterson have made it abundantly clear. They want a committee back. There were three different running backs on the team last year 
who went on IR. They signed Boston Scott off the street and still were giving him double-digit touches per game. Uh, And and really, that's all I want for fantasy. We were just talking about Antonio Gibson. What makes him such an attractive, uh, you know, rookie draft pick is because he's a way better receiver than he is pure runner. And and outside of the red zone, targets are worth 3.3 times as much as carries uh, for fantasy running backs and PPR leagues. That's that's a big takeaway. The other one is what correlates best to fantasy production for a running back. It's not carries. It's not targets. It's not touches. You know, actually getting the ball, which you would think would, or it's not, and it's not even, uh, or maybe it is yards, but I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's rushing yards or receiving yards, maybe total yards, but it's, it's snaps. You need to be on the field. You want those running backs who are used in every facet of the game and do not come off the field. Uh, and I, I like Miles Sanders. I just question that he's going to get that sort of usage. I, I think it's likely the sign of veteran. They've been linked to, to, to veterans this off season and they were linked to JK Dobbins in the second yep. round. So I, he's a guy I'm nervous about, you know, Josh Jacobs, he said Lynn Bowden's going to be their, their Joker running back. He looks to me like an upper middle class man's Jalen Richard. That is bad news for Josh Jacobs. Right. I want those bell cow. I see Kenyon Drake as a bell cow. I see Clyde Edwards Alaire as a bell cow in the second half of the season. I think Austin Eckler could be a bell cow. Uh, and even if not, I mean, he smashed on, you know, 50% of the snaps last year. So those are guys I like more than, than Miles Sanders. Yeah. And I think that you hit on one side of it with the idea that that's just not their design and they're not going to invest it. Uh, in, they're not going to have a running back be that foundation, single running back be that foundational. And then Jay Moyer stuff, and he does a lot of great work over at Matt Waldman RSP, um, is just that his, he's lacking the vision and efficiency to get the optimal results on bread and butter running plays. You know, as like save Jordan Howard was doing last year, even though Howard's not going to add a lot with athleticism at the end of those runs. And I think you're absolutely right that it's at least 50 50 that they're going to bring in somebody like Carlos Hyde or Devontae Freeman or who knows. And they've already raised – I think Howie already raised the possibility of it. So you can't even say that you were blindsided by it. And look, if, you, if you're starting to dabble in early rankings, and I'm starting to roll them out little by little. And then again, once I put my first set of early rankings out, immediately I want to change a bunch of things about them. But at least it's an introduction to the questions you're going to be asking yourself. And, you know, Scott, we've got all these variables, right? Like, is Joe Mixon going to hold out? Like you said with Eckler, right. how, how big is his role going to be? Kenyon Drake, is is they really going to commit to him like they were when he was winning championships for people? So I'm guessing it's going to be like from the late first, because running backs, guess what? Stud running back is back. Have you heard, Scott? I mean, it's like 10 out of the first 12 picks in some drafts are stud running back, mm-hmm. right? Running back, running back, running back, running back, running back, running back. So even if you weren't planning on going running back in the first or second round, you're going to go back, travel back in time with me to like 20 years ago whenever running backs were 80% of the first two rounds, even if you didn't want to go running back in the first or second round, it was the wrong move to, to do the upside down zero running back style draft because the running backs would dry up so quickly that there'd really be nothing left for you. And then you'd be overpaying for whatever running back you took in the third or fourth round. Uh, and you wouldn't have that big of an advantage because wide receivers that were first or second round values were there in the third or fourth round. And you'd be like bashing yourself head against the desk. Like uh, how can I stop people from getting wide receivers that are as good as the ones I took in the first and second round when everyone's taking running backs. That's how the first round of drafts are going to be this year. And it also reflects the way that there was one true wide receiver one for fantasy last year, Michael Thomas. That's mm-hmm. it. That's how it's going to be. And then the other thing that's going to sicken you 
is in the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth round of drafts, if you're like, oh, I got three great wide receivers in the first four rounds, I don't have to go wide receiver in the mid rounds, and you see the wide receivers people are getting in the mid rounds, and you aren't taking any, you're going to hate it. You're going to hate fantasy drafts if you're not taking wide receivers in the mid rounds, folks. So making running back decisions early is important. And even if you think, gosh, Kenny Drake in the second round, that seems too rich. Well, uh, these are some things you have to think about. And I think with Miles Sanders, we may be at a temporary peak and we'll come back to that a little bit. Of course, he can be talented enough and take those steps to make it all not matter. But I like that. And I, and I'm sorry that you got dragged, although I know that you, you're durable <laughs> and you're not you really going to care. Yeah. And look, I, I mean, hopefully people are still respectful on Twitter, but I love the sword and shield on Twitter. Because it's how I test my beliefs. Me and Mike Clay used to go round after round after round back in the day. Mm. And it's just a way to finding people who are very well thought people who have the opposite opinion, opposite take and probing and having them probe you and even having people jump in from the peanut gallery is a way that you evolve your understanding of situations and really understand the whole range of outcomes. Cause even though we give actionable advice. That's another layer to what we're supposed to do for people. Just give them an idea of a range of outcomes so you can start to react. Um, you know, like in Tennessee's offense took that big left turn and, and we know like, well, Hey, if you have an actual functional quarterback now, Derek Henry can take off and so can one of the receivers and, and so on. Oh, wow. Um, what else? I just wanted to jump go in. Ahead. Yeah, please, please, please. Sorry. I go on and on. Good. You're, you're talking about a throwback to like, you know, 20 years ago, fantasy that long ago. And, and that's exactly what I thought last season was. It was a throwback to my first season doing fantasy football. And in that time, it was an outlier. And then last year was an outlier where it's basically like snake drafts were broken. It was, you know, however many years ago, you draft Ladanian Tomlinson one and right. you win your league. Like that's right. how broken it was. Last year, you draft Christian McCaffrey, too, and you probably win your league. I have the stat. In ESPN leagues, 48% of all McCaffrey teams advanced to their championship round. It was basically a coin flip. When is there any skill in drafting McCaffrey, too? It was no. It was, it was Saquon Barkley goes one, you draft McCaffrey, too. Meanwhile, Lamar Jackson, who, you know, very savvy late round pick, only 40% of uh, Lamar Jackson teams went to the championship round. So zero RB gets a lot right. And I'm mostly like, I'm like kind of like a zero RB drafter, except those first two rounds. I'll, I'll target those Uber bell cow backs who are on the field every snap because those are the guys who win championships. And then after that, for sure, devalue running back for all the reasons, you know, the great Sean Siegel laid out, but, but really the, the, the league winners are those, you know, uh, Christian McCaffrey type of running backs. Yeah. I do, or, or David Johnson, a few 2016, whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the guys that are just those foundational pieces of the offense who also add value to their touches. Because Leonard Fournette was a foundational piece of his offense last year, but didn't really add value to his touches. And that's, by the way, going circling back to your question about <clears throat> regime stability, the lack of regime stability and Tom Coughlin going bye-bye is why all of a sudden Leonard Fournette is persona non grata. They can't even trade. Well, they can't trade him because they're asking way too much. But, yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure how big a role Fournette is going to have in Jay Gruden's offense. I mean, if you know he's not going to be there next year, you start working in. I've right call Armstrong a divine Ozigbo. And we see what happens. It was a good question. I'm glad in the chat rooms. Thank you, everybody, for showing up this morning, by the way. Again, happy Monday. Um, 
Matthew Bubar, a uh, friend of the show. What do we think about Keyshawn Vaughn? I'll let you go first because I have strong feelings about Keyshawn Vaughn. Yeah, so I, I'd love to hear your feelings. Uh, in my my prospect model, my pre-combine, pre-draft prospect model, it had him as the number nine running back in the class. But if you threw out uh, his first two seasons with Lovey Smith in, in Illinois, actually had him fourth. Like He was really dominant at Vanderbilt. If you consider the fact that he had the worst offensive line in the Power Five, the worst offense in the Power Five, the entire offense ran through him. And the thing that attracted me to him was – he was versatile. He was used as a pass catcher. He was a strong pass blocker. And really, that's what I got from the post-draft press conferences where Sean uh, licked uh, the GM just over and over, said the exact same thing. Like The only praise he gave on was the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And it's what matters most to me. It's what we were just talking about, which was he's capable of playing on all three downs. He's a guy that can play every down. He's a guy that could do everything. He could catch and he could run. It's the same quote over and over again. But that's what's important for fantasy is maybe they're looking for a bell cow. And that's as fantasy drafters exactly what we want. But he's still a guy I have a feeling is going to be overdrafted. But I'm eager to hear what you have to say. Yeah, late first, early second is where you probably have to take him in a rookie draft to get him. So you have to forego one of those wide receivers, you know, a Pittman Mm -hmm. or an Ayuk or someone like that. That's that's what's on the other side of the scale. That's not a difficult call for me. I mean, look, if you do take Keyshawn Vaughn, and he is a three-down running back this year, and he does have 1,200, 1,400 total yards and double-digit touchdowns because Tom Brady spruces everything up in this offense. Uh, I mean, and when I say spruces everything up, I just mean like limiting turnovers, sustaining drives, and so on. Then I'd say sell him. Sell him right away. Sell him Sell him even during the season, unless he's an important part of a team that's making a run-to championship. Because to me, and I think that, you know, uh, Tyler Johnson's another good example. Like, the models, depending on what part percentage of this pie chart in the model is production, it's going to affect uh, how the player is ranked. And production models are going to like Vaughn a lot. Uh, he did have a lot of long runs, although he has build-up speed, and I don't think he's going to be getting to the third level as often as he did. He's just a good running back. I mean, in NFL terms, I think he's an average running back. I, I think he's probably right at the fringe between like startable and a committee back. In NFL terms, there's nothing special about his game, but as you, he can do everything pretty well. He's not the kind of running back that's going to run routes, but he can catch checkdowns. He's got good hands. He's a good pass blocker. Um, but he's just screams the kind of running back that gets drafted on the situation and then is replaced in a year or two or just never even lives up. You know, remember Bishop Shanky, you know? Like just never actually even lives up to the initial expectations because you still got to play, you still got to seize it, and I, I, you know, we'll see. It's now the ball's in Ronald Jones' court to come back, and he is basically the same age as Vaughn, and show that hey, given some time, given some uh, getting accustomed to the NFL, he's going to have something to offer that they have to say we have to mix Jones in. If they mix Jones in, then I don't need that Vaughn ever takes off except for the weeks that he scores a touchdown or two. And you you play him as a matchup play, but I just feel like having the high ceiling wide receiver talent at the end of the first second round that's that's too much for me. And then let's put it in these Absolutely. terms, and, and let's put it in these terms for redraft because I don't know what this redraft ADP is yet. I'm guessing it's going to be like fifth, sixth round, maybe as high as fourth. I hope not third. Like I think you're going crazy if you're taking him over. That's true. Yeah. 
that's like I mean like Melvin Gordon versus Keyshawn Vaughn or something like that. You're 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 way over out over your skis there. But what about like Keyshawn Vaughn versus David Johnson if we're just looking at a one year window? Yeah, man. I, I, Do you talk I, yourself into David Johnson this year? That's what I'm getting at. You gonna talk yourself into David I, Johnson so like I, in the? I, I don't know. I, there was like that one GIF that that got like five thousand retweets that can ne- I'll never get out of my head where he just looked like Jason Witten getting a handoff. You know? <laughs> right. So cooked. Right. It's tough. I mean, the opp- the opportunity should be there. I I I'd say pass on both. You you brought up Melvin Gordon, who's actually a guy I, I'm heavily targeting just because of, you know, Pat Shermer. We know yep. the, the narrative there, unless unless Cecil has any words no. otherwise. No, in fact, Cecil's cautioning people that Lindsay is just, I mean, as good as Lindsay has looked at times, you just have to look at the personnel management and what the team, like sometimes we keep trying to, and don't get me wrong, there are times, like Kenyon Drake is a good example, like there are times that we watch the way players managed and we say the team is wrong and, and we end up being right. We end up being right. At some point, there's a reveal, and we're like, aha, see, we were right. And then there are times that the team is managing a player. And, of course, what did it take for Kenny Drake? A change of teams. That might be what it takes for Philip Lindsay. Uh, it's just the team can't spell out with their personnel moves any clearer that they're not really seeing Lindsay as a foundational player in this offense, no matter what Lindsay does. And Gordon will be. And, you know, Denver offense should be fun as long as Drew Locke makes that step. That was wild <laughs> watching what Denver did yeah. in the draft. Um, mm-hmm. It was, you know, just kept going back to the bar. Give me pour another one, pour another one. Um, so that Keyshawn Vaughn one was good. Um, what else? So, so we're talking about like early, early crushes, right? Early players that you're looking at. You're looking at ADP again in the background. We're seeing what people think of them. G- give me, it can be strong either way, negative or positive. Some players that are inspiring strong feelings. Well, I know I know we're both really high on on CD Lamb and Jerry Judy, mm-hmm. and you know, well, this is unideal. The landing spots were unideal. You know, there's a lot of you know really good receivers there. Uh, they weren't the first wide receivers drafted. Uh, it was Henry Ruggs. All right, whatever. Like like Oakland just made an egregious mistake, and they're a poorly run franchise, and you can't convince me otherwise. Meanwhile, uh, Jerry Jones. John Elway were beside themselves, just right. overjoyed that Oakland screwed up to the degree that they did. Um, and then you want to talk about, you know, immediate target volume. We already went into this, uh, but at the same time, it's like you could ma- you could have made the same case in in Julio Jones's you know rookie year. It's like, well, Roddy White's there, Tony Gonzalez is there, Harry Douglas is going to get fifty targets. Like, what? It- what is what is uh, Jerry Judy and C.D. Lamb going to do? They're still you know top five uh, mm-hmm. prospects for me, and like, everything from the the uh, my post draft press review article series just like backs that up. I think uh, Stephen Jones even said that uh, let it slip and said he viewed Lamb as the number two uh, immediately. Uh, so those are two guys I'm really excited about. Uh, Jalen Rieger, I, I like a lot. Justin Jefferson less, so I, I think you're you're not high on Rieger, right? No, well, see, here's my thing with Rieger. Okay, mm-hmm. you watch his tape at TCU, and man, there are plays that are just wonderful. Like he looks like Spider Man going up for the <laughs> ball if no yeah. one's around him. 
you know, mm-hmm. like just just if you could see like a ball that maybe one other receiver in the class could have gotten to, right? You see him sometimes turn a guy into stone with a double move. Sometimes his double moves are just unbelievable. Uh, and that's going to work in Philadelphia. You see him not quite to the level of Lamb, but you see him do some pretty special things after the catch. Obviously, you're going to set him up and do that. But I see so much inconsistency, right? So when I watch wide receivers leading up to the draft, I'm doing my very amateur evaluation, Scott. I almost want to get lulled into a hypnotic rhythm with their reps, right? Their route stems and things like that, their timing. And with Rager, you never quite knew what you were going to get. And that scares me a little bit when it comes to translation in the NFL because you can't do that in the NFL. Like, a wide receiver gets how many times to affect the outcome of a game? Six, seven, eight, maybe? And if one or two of those reps is a rep that causes an interception because you rounded your route because you didn't hit, you didn't fire off the line of scrimmage, that, then that starts to lose, you start to lose trust no matter how much you can add. So, and I also see Rager like with his contested catches, that is something where he doesn't shine. So I just feel like there's a bust risk there, but it, but, if he tightens those things up, you know, rocket ship. So he's a, more of a, a boom bust of that tier where like Pittman, I think, is a higher floor, maybe a little lower ceiling. Although Pittman's ceiling is higher than we think as long as they can get the quarterback straightened out a year or two from now. So, that, I mean, but that's my like amateur scout stuff. You got, y'all have a pro in Greg Cosell and he, I know his stuff. Is out there. He's tweeted out a lot of his scouting reports, which are fantastic to read. He gets right to the point and late and shows his work. Um, and I think that's something that's included in uh, fantasy points. Let's talk about that for just for a second. Again, fantasy points. Uh, Scott Barrett, you know him, you love him. Grant Barfield, Greg Cosell, Adam Kaplan, I know is part of the team. You all have a medical team. Um, so I just want to give you a chance to talk about fantasy points because it's exciting. I was excited when I heard you say, hey, by the way, if you're wondering what I'm up to, this is it. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, so I, I left PFF maybe five or so months ago. We started uh, this website, fantasypoints.com. You can get in, you can su- subscribe for free. Uh, you know, Graham Barfield, who's been, you know, one of my really good friends for a really long time, not just online, but, but in person too. Uh, we got John Hansen, the original fantasy guru, Joe Dolan, uh, Tom Brawley, Greg Cassell, Adam Kaplan. Uh, we do IDP. We have two doctors on staff. Um, just uh, I'm going to be handling DFS during the season for the most part, uh, but also going to do a start sit article. Uh, and this off season, you know, you can uh, you can find you know all the stuff I typically do. We're going to try and keep it without a paywall because of you know uncertainty related to the coronavirus, and really just want everyone to come check it out and see all the, the really cool stuff we're doing. So um, yeah, appreciate that. This is uh, this is my baby. Uh, this, this is many, many years in the works and uh, we're excited to show it to you. Okay. DFS. I don't know. You and I have talked, I, I thought it was DFB, not DFS. Uh, <laughs> what's the DFB guide? What's some of the big things you put up on the wall, like the slogans in the DFB guide to DFS? Oh man. Um, I don't know. This, this thing's kind of like just, it's, it's really its own unique beast where with redraft there's, you know, I could have these, these multiple slogans where 
DFS, DFS, like, thank God I love it. It's just this like all consuming passion where, you know, during the season I'll do, I'll write this one article that, you know, is sometimes 5,000 words. And it's really the culmination of literally five, uh, full long days of, of work. Um, but I mean, we, we've had a lot of success two years ago, one follower across like six different weeks, won over a hundred thousand dollars wins of like 50, 20, whatever. But, uh, I, I, you got to get into DFS thing because it's just, it's just so. Oh, fun I was, I was until I moved to Louisiana. And I mean, I, oh, of course right. it was like the last, it was the last thing that, uh, I mean, you know, first we have to serve our customers, our audience and deliver our content. Um, and DFS is, I hate to say it, but it really does get into like the gambling ebb and flow where there'll be times that you feel like it's not, you're not doing well over the course of a day and you watch your tickets come in and you're actually doing really well. And because the public was on a totally different, you're, you might've been like 70% optimal, but everybody else was like 40% optimal. And then there are times that you feel like you nailed everything, but everybody else also nailed everything. And almost none of your tickets come in. So it's, it's definitely maddening because it's difficult sometimes to know how you're doing compared to your perception of how you're doing. But I mean, do you have like any specific metrics you've come up with or any specific rules of thumb or like things that are just your starting point when you're starting to put together your lineups for the week? Yeah. So, so my go to. All right, so I, I, I think this is legitimately one of the best stats ever made. And I, I know I invented it. So, you know, nice. maybe I'm a little biased, but it's, uh, expected fantasy points. And it, uh, just really basically just, just measures, uh, the, the volume a given player has received. And it, it assigns, uh, a fantasy point like to that. So, yeah. So, 20 red zone carries, five carries inside the five yard line, 50 targets with a total of 100 air yards. Put all that together and what's it worth? It's worth 230 fantasy points. And how do you do that? I took 12 years of play by play data, uh, looking at it by the specific, uh, down and distance, the specific, you know, distance to the end zone, the, uh, total air yards on each target. And, uh, yeah, also expected touchdowns, but basically every single week I would look at that and I would look at, you know, the, 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 the top buy low guys, the top sell high guys contrast their expected fantasy points to their salary. And it's just like a great w- way to find price, uh, discrepancies for DFS. So, and I, I, I like this and we've talked about this before on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, if I understand you correctly, you know, it's this idea of a red zone touch, you know, from this yard line is worth on average this many fantasy points. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and this is where opportunity is king or volume is king. Um, and then you get, and then you can start doing like concentric circles out from that, right? Well, if it's this player taking the touch or if it's in this offense or if it's against this team, and that's one of the, one of the things I want to ask you about DFS in general. Defenses don't matter, right? In general, how important to you, and you can always say, we can, you know, it's what we do on the couch, right? We, we get out the fine tooth comb, we split hairs, cause it can be like, well, sometimes matchups are important, but here are some match, kinds of matchup things people pay attention to that I don't. How much are matchups part of your DFS approach? I mean, it's, it's a big part of it. So, so like ask the DFS pros, 
you know, guys who have actual skin in the game, uh, you know, who, who do this for a li- like, this is what puts food on their table. They're all going to tell you the exact same thing that matchups matter. I think the issue is yeah, the, the problem, the, the matchups don't matter at all crowd, uh, has is the same problem. Like a lot of us run into is like the middle bulk of the sample in terms of efficiency or like a lot of fantasy football metrics, like doesn't really matter at all. Like defense doesn't matter at all in the middle bulk of a sample, but the polar extremes are extremely important. Just look at, you know, tight ends last year versus Arizona. Yeah. Uh, look at quarterbacks versus New England. Things like that really, really matters. And then you could dive in, you know, deeper to it. It's like rushing quarterbacks against New England because they play man defense so often. You're rushing quarterbacks are going to smash New England. Look at outside wide receivers versus Philly. So if you just look at total wide receivers versus Philly, there's they're, you know, bottom seven, but like they're, they're the best defense against slot wide receivers and they're the worst against outside right. wide receivers. And that's been true for three consecutive years. So they're, you know, it's not as noisy as, as you think. You just need to know how to navigate it. Yeah. Finding those things. And I always think, Scott, the important thing is to have a hypothesis and some idea of a why. Because if you just that the numbers line up, but there isn't some sort of why that makes sense, then chances are that's going to be proven to be counterfeit at some point. Um, and then you just have to also pay attention to what's changing, you know, like injured players returning to the offense or something like that. Uh, these are things that can change those things. But I'm just glad you didn't dismiss it and say matchups don't matter. And I think you're right to say that in the middle, uh, matchups maybe shouldn't like matchups shouldn't get you off of a player that you are really excited about how they're playing. They're in sync with their quarterback. The game plan is highlighting them and now they're running into a tougher matchup and matchups shouldn't get you on a player that you otherwise don't feel any sort of affinity for. Um, but otherwise matchups are important. So exciting. But, but Go ahead. Like you're always talking about, and this is such a good point is that, you know, you could look at the season and break it into fours and it just looks like, radically different yeah. we can look across like the, the full spectrum and be like oh arizona terrible against tight ends whatever but at the same time like we were thinking that weeks you know three through eight about a different defense and a different position but they make adjustments and you know that that kills us that's why it's like you know you can't just blindly follow defenses like you said you know there has to be some sort of a priori you know narrative building behind it uh, I was watching the, the press conference with John Elway. And he said a big reason why he, he wanted to draft wide receivers was because, you know, he noticed at the tail end of last season, you know, defenses were really selling out to stop Cortland Sutton. And of course, you know, that's something that's going to happen. Like you, you ride, the, that's why DFS is partly like so fun. You know, you ride these waves of guys and then, you know, get off of it when, when the narrative shifts or when the, the, the data shifts in a different direction. But, it's, it's, it's all part of it. And that's a, a great point that, that you've always brought up. And I've always liked like the defense, like the, the season can look, break it up into fours and it looks tr- dramatically different. Yeah. I wouldn't give credit to Matt Waldman on that too, is that they, it takes like four weeks for them to catch up on uh, to things. And this year more than ever, that's going to be important. And I think we're going to see a lot of things that catch people off guard, like in October, you know, um, the, the microbe gods be willing uh, that, there's going to be dramatic shifts in offenses and, and, and defenses too, because, and then, and then we're going to see some of the non-continuity, uh, catch up to the continuity. Um, what do you, 
so this is an interesting time in our calendar, right? Like, okay, we've caught our breath. We've reacted to the draft. Um, we, normally, we'd have, like, dribbles and drops of things coming in from OTAs. We're not going to have that this year. What are you going to be doing for the next couple of months as you're preparing for the 2020 season? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I have, like, a bunch of series that I just write every year, so I'll probably – uh, get started on that. I actually just wrote what I think might be my best article ever. I feel like, wow. yeah, I, I feel like I'm constantly, you know, just trying to, to replicate what, what you do so often on your podcast, you know, like really respect you as a philosophical mind, what Adam Harstad has done in his articles and, and Sean Siegel, uh, you know, started at Rotoviz. And I feel like, you know, I'm all, just like always trying to rip that off to some degree or, or emulate it. Uh, and I, I think I finally like hit a, hit a home run in one of those like deep philosophical dives. Ooh. All right. Again, I mean, and, you know, again, I'm not trying to turn this into any kind of ad for fantasy points, but I'm excited. I would go get my account right now <laughs> if I didn't have that. We're almost like the last 10 minutes. Um, so we can kind of go off the rails a little bit mm-hmm. here. Um, I guess I'll, I'll start off this way, Scott. I'm going to try to keep it positive because mm-hmm. man, there's all kinds of ways that like we could get downtrodden. We may anyway. Um, what, what's, what's the first on your list when, as, as we get closer to a new normal, we're not going to go back to the old normal. We will get back to a normal as, as life eventually does reassert its equilibrium where we can start having communal public life again. What's the first thing on your list, man? What's the thing you miss the most from pre-corona life? Yeah, maybe we are going to get a little depressing. Oh, no. My life is kind of, you know, the same as it always been. I know. Me too. Workaholic who works from home. So uh, a haircut. The only thing that's, like, really impacted my life is just uh, they closed my pool and they closed my gym. Mm -hmm. But uh, outside of that, everything's pretty much the same. I'd like to – I'm supposed to go back to New Jersey, visit friends and family. But what about you? Live music. I mean – Mm, okay. Uh, they did the jazz fest in place. I gotta say, I'll take my, it's my show so I can do this. I can say rest in peace to the Midnight Creeper. Man, New Orleans has lost a lot of pillars of the community. A lot of people that are like, really, and New Orleans has such an incredible sense of community that people are really a part of each other's lives. And even me just listening to WWOZ and the Midnight Creeper on Thursday nights, he used to do the Midnight to Five show. Um, he actually did the Midnight to Five show as Midnight Creeper and then, the next show was the gospel show and he turned into brother Jesse and he wouldn't brother Jess. And he didn't even tell anybody that, that he was the same person. People, people, never, oh my God. <laughs> people never knew it. He was, uh, he was, uh, 72. I think, um, he passed coronavirus. Midnight creeper was fantastic. Um, anyway, and it's just, um, community live music. They just did the jazz fest in place, which was fun because they put together like the sets, uh, in order. They did a lot of local stuff. They did a lot of stuff from the 2006, the first, one after Katrina that had a lot of real poignant stuff, uh, a lot of stuff where the music really meant more because, you know, there's a song like Randy Newman's um, Louisiana 1927, they're trying to wash us away, you know. Um, and that's one of the things about being down here. I think that, I think New Orleans will be extremely resilient because New Orleans is already rebuilt from zero, from minus zero, below zero, because everything was flooded, everything was ruined, and, and it came all the way back. I don't, I think that these things will fire back up, but that live music feeling all the air vibrating and being among people that are also under the influence, if you will, 
Um, that's one of the things I miss. But I'm with you, Scott, actually, and I've made this joke a bunch of times that those of us in the, the fantasy football world, and I think a lot of internet content providers have already been living meaningful lives from their home and having their rituals and their things in their orbits, but not necessarily having to do with public life, you know, uh, and that this hasn't been as nearly as harsh of a transition as it has been for a lot of other people in the society. Um, but we'll see, you know, this is still, I, I, like you said, we'll probably, I can't help but to turn this into something a little bit more dark or shadowy. Um, but there's a lot more change coming than I think the hive mind has absorbed. You know, it's interesting watching it leech through the hive mind via social media, like the realization, the slowly, it's kind of like a tsunami, you know, like the water went out and you can see it on the horizon. Like it's going to come back. We'll see what it brings. I'll take this to a total different direction, Scott. Uh, and again, try to stay more positive. Um, and yeah, Diego Lopez is, uh, um, recipes Tony Allen, a lot of good. There's Richie Cole died early. I don't think it had anything to do with coronavirus. Another jazz great. Just appreciating. Look, what this whole, I'll say this again, what this whole coronavirus thing about is like cherishing life, cherishing everybody's lives and the role we play in each other's lives and um, having moments to do that. So I'll go this way and then I'll tell you mine, but because we like, our minds are sponges. We always want to be reading, watching. I know last time I talked to you, you said you were looking forward to reading books and things like that. Um, give me something, a book, um, uh, a movie, a show, give me something that has had your attention or interest lately when you're not being a workaholic. Um, yeah, I just, I just bought a book, uh, the Tao of capital by, uh, Mark Spitznagel. I'm, you know, maybe a quarter of the way through it, but, uh, really, really fond of that. I think it's a really good book. Um, but, uh, TV, um, so wait, the Dow of capital? Cause those two things don't seem to go together to me. Dow and capital. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious what you would specifically, you would think of it. Um, but, uh, but I don't, I don't know if I want to get there. Okay. I will instead of, Next I'll, time. I'll, I'll, instead of out myself as, yeah. uh, uh, with something embarrassing is, uh, yeah, my, my girlfriend is the world's biggest, uh, Gilmore girls fan. Okay. Which is which is really adorable, I think, and um, sure. I I don't have a lot of time to watch TV. You know, just started this new website, NFL Draft, all that stuff. Uh, but but we've watched, we're now on the seventh season, mm-hmm. and I don't hate it as much as I was. You know, so sure I would hate it. Good. It's actually like a very very adorable, wholesome, you know, family friendly show, and, it, and just like the fact that this is her favorite show, where my favorite show is like The Sopranos or. Sure. or something with murder it just it just like makes me even more fond of her it's love you know i mean <laughs> Maybe, if you yeah. really love each other no any in any loving give and take relationship like, like this is important to you when what's great about what you said scott is that it makes you love her even more even if it's not something that you've incorporated in like you're all about the gilmore girls and that show and Rory and what boy she's dating or whatever. I'm familiar with it. <laughs> I know that there was, like, it's like in like a Connecticut town, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, it, it, anyway, and I think it's good as an aside. I think it's good for all of us males to, uh, get some things in our diet, uh, movies, television, books that are from the female perspective, you know, like try to read some books by female authors, try to re watch some stories that are, 
from the female point of view because we're lulled into um, the male point of view as the default because, well, that's since we were kids, like what's been served up is changing little by little. So I commend you for that. But yeah, what's great about what you said is that even though you haven't become, you know, thinking this is a great show, you still know what your shows are about. It makes you, you see, it makes you see things in the one that you love that make you love them even more. Um, and hopefully that's honestly, I hope what's getting a lot of people through coronavirus times is love, right? You know, I don't want to sound all like Pollyannish, like the Beatles, all you need is love. But the things that you love, and it doesn't have to necessarily be people, it's just what you love about being alive. Like what makes being alive for you a great thing? You know, I've been building, I'm back to building jigsaw puzzles. I love jigsaw puzzles. <sighs> I've, we've joked about this and this is where everyone's going to be like, do it, do it. I've joked about, and someone said that there are YouTube videos, like YouTube channels where it's just like watching someone build a jigsaw puzzle. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I forget about fantasy football. I'm going to build jigsaw puzzles professionally. Can I do that? Because uh, I can get immersed. The whole world just falls away if I'm building a jigsaw puzzle. And they're great, too, because if you get into, like, jigsaw puzzles that are art, you're seeing, like, all the individual brush strokes and things like that. Um, so I hope that people hey, what, are renewing. What's the allure but, there? Hmm? What's the allure there with jigsaw puzzles? It, does it, like, do you want to do, like, the biggest j- jigsaw puzzle? Or? Well, you don't want to go too far because there are jigsaw puzzles that have, like, no picture on them, like the torturous ones. That are just like pieces that are, it's like all white or something or all one color. So you're just strictly going on it. Um, the allure for me is that when I'm in the, it's just like when we're doing fantasy analysis or watching a football game or something. When I'm in the mode of looking at a picture, looking at the piece, like, you know, so I only like to do like a thousand pieces or more. And some of it's the breaking the big task into the smaller tasks and the smaller tasks into smaller tasks and figuring out how you're going to attack this thing. But when I'm, I'm in the mode of the larger picture and then locating a piece in it or trying to create, like, find all the pieces for one element, everything else in the world just falls away, you know? It's like, again, like Zen or Tao or something like that, mm-hmm. where I'm... So here's, real quick, and we're, I don't want to go over an hour. This is, like, one of my pet theories about life in general. I don't know if I've said this on the show before. Mm-hmm. But, again, I was talking about this on Mitch, Mitch Carl's great thing that he's doing, Rise and Fall, about... Um, that we we all want to be absorbed in something. The, this, the I'm going to go over an hour. Sorry, Cecil. The boundary between this and that, or me and you, uh, is uh, uh, us and them. You know, it's illusory. I mean, it's a way for us to our egos and our way of processing this thing works for us. It's like a way of processing this thing we're part of, but it really truly is one continuous whole. It really is one pulsating thing. We're one little extension of it, but we're all part of that same thing. And our egos, even though they empower us, torture us. Our egos cut us off from this, right? Our egos and getting absorbed in the eye. And I know this well because this is, I'm only speaking, speaking of my own flaws and foibles. Um, it separates us off and it makes everything about me and I and it cuts off that flow. But what we all yearn for is getting back to that point where we dissolve back into something. It can be dissolving back into our loved ones, you know, our, our, our girlfriend or wife, husband, children, you know, our friends. It can be fishing, you know, and just figuring out like where are the fish biting today and tying your own flies. It can be farming, We've done a little more gardening, you know, it can be crocheting, it can be cooking, 
It can be watching your shows where you get absorbed in your shows or reading a book. But those moments that you forget the ego and you're not you anymore and you're you're somewhere in between you and other things watching football. That these are the moments that we feel okay, like really okay. Where we feel okay in a way that again from that Buddhist perspective, that it's not just like desire, chasing the desire, desire fulfilled, oh no, I have to find something else to chase after, and you're constantly in this loop. So for me, jigsaw puzzles just get me right up to that point. And um, jigsaw puzzles are another thing that's been like, there's been a run on them. Like they're expensive or like you can't find them anywhere. Have you found this, Scott, that like you try to get like regular things from Amazon or what have you and they're just not there or they're like three times as much as they were last time you got them? Uh, n- not, not really. I was one of those people who like stocked up on everything nice. way, way early. Uh, one of those jerks. But yeah, I, I like everything you're saying. You're, you're reminding me of a book my friend who uh, lives in, a, in an ashram with a guru gave to me uh, Who Am I by mm-hmm. Ramana Maharshi. He mm-hmm. described it as, this is my guru, whose guru was this guy, whose guru was this guy, whose guru was Ramana Maharshi, whose guru was the mountain. Right. Sounds so badass. But, yeah, it's all about, you know, you know shed the ego, letting God in. I'm, I'm not that enlightened. But, but I mean, you're, you're definitely – Echoing things he said to me. No, it's it's and it's it's okay because once you get enlightened, then you just go back to like, what do I want to do today? I don't know. Jeez, bro, <laughs> you know what I mean? At the end of enlightenment, mm-hmm. everything you're just back in life, and you have to figure out something to do with yourself today. The one thing I'll mention since I went over an hour that I've watched was one of the best things on Amazon Prime. Uh, um, it's called First Footsteps, and it's about the Aborigines in Australia, and it was just incredible. Let me tell you a quick thing from it. This, this stuff's gonna blow your mind, Scott. Boomerangs, right? You know about boomerangs. You've heard about boomerangs. I mean, boomerangs in and of themselves are pretty awesome. And they get into how, like, they're not really sure how Aborigines aerodynamically figured out how to throw a boomerang. Like, how to create something, because it has this, like, special curve and special shape. So they can throw them up to, like, 300 yards and have them come back to the exact place they're standing. Which, in and of itself, is incredible. To, like, create something like that, right? Like, something you can throw and it comes back to you. That's wild. Yeah. But like, like, did you have any idea what boomerangs were used for? I mean, I just made an assumption that I was wrong, just so you know. Like, when you think like boomerangs, what do they use boomerangs for? What would you think? Is it a weapon? What's what, yeah. I mean, you think like, I would think like you'd like throw it at your opponent and whack them in the head or throw them in, throw it as like a, a bird and hit it out of the birds? sky or something. Yeah. Right, right, right. And it does have to do with yeah. birds, but it's actually that the, the, the profile of it looks like, I don't remember the bird that they're hunting, but it looks like a hawk above birds, like a flock of birds, and they all drive down, and the Aborigines would have, like, their nets set up. So one of them would throw the boomerang, and all the birds would see it and be like, oh, man, there's a hawk. Like, dive down, and they dive down right into the nets. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome, yeah. Like, like to invent something to mimic nature. And they also have been doing controlled burning of their landscape in a mosaic for thousands of years to create food supplies because like certain animals would eat things when they would, certain animals were really into things when they would just start start to grow back and they would burn it in all these different intervals. So there were different food sources and different part of it. They were doing aquaculture. They were doing this stuff thousands and thousands of years ago. Long, like a lot of the first recorded ever is in, is in Australia. Um, wow. there's, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, the Australian author, Aboriginal culture goes back 40, 50,000 years and they are true. Like you watch, did you watch the Mandalorian? This is the way 
You know, this is the way they have like the law and they've been living that way for tens of thousands of years, passing it down. And they talk about stories like with the great flood, there's a great flood in every story. And there was actually a great flood because Australia used to be greater Australia, like New Guinea and everything was part of it. And then I think it was like starting 18,000 years ago to about 7,000 years ago, the waters kept rising and rising and rising and it cut it off from New Guinea and the rest of the land. And they still tell those stories like it's like that happened to their grandparents. You know, like they, the oral tradition is so strong that the people today still have those stories. Of course, there's also the part of the story whenever the English show up. That's for another podcast with an entire other set of considerations. But lots of new considerations, folks. Fantasy points. Scott Barrett, Scott Barrett, DFB. Get your fantasy points account. We'll be coming back to these shores again many, many, many times. Everybody out there, much love. Thanks for giving people like me and Scott and all of the rest of us in our little world, dysfunctional world, uh, something to do. And I hope we continue to give you something to do. May there be football. Stay safe. Masks, hand washing. I see a lot of people going back out there like everything's okay. It's still the same danger that it was. So just take your precautions. Uh, look after one another. Uh, we're still here to look after you, and you help look after us always. So stay classy. And we love you. Get a record player. Start a record club. Uh, because it's the ritual. It's, re- it's marrying music back to ritual. And whenever you take your record out and you handle it very gently because it's a precious thing, and you put it on the record and the sound of the needle going on the record, we all know what that means, how that prompts you, your whole must remember it. And it's a moment in your life when you slow down and you make yourself ready to receive something. Yo, later, fellas.